Welcome to part five of our series, Ephesians from Death to Life. As you probably know, we're working through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. And as I already mentioned, I wasn't here last week. I did have the pleasure of going back and listening to the podcast. If you weren't here, I encourage you to check it out. It's at citychurchob.com. There's a uh, messages tab you can go to and find the podcast or you can find it on iTunes or through our app. All that stuff is updated. I know there was a season there where it wasn't updating to our app. That is fixed. So if you have the City Church app, you can find all of our latest podcasts right there. But but my friend Dwindle Nelms brought the word last week and I was so excited for what he shared and for what he said. Would you join me in just giving some honor to Dwindle for sharing his heart? I love the the stories that he shared, the testimony of what God has done in his life and his family's life. In fact, there were some details of that story that I wasn't even aware of, and, and so it encouraged me. Um, he, he talked about how he wanted to talk about how our in Christ our position is rectified, but he couldn't find three R's for that. So he talked about how in Christ our position is fixed. And the, the master of alliteration also said this. He says, when our position changes, it changes our power, which when our power changes, it changes our perception. And when our perception changes, it changes our potential. It's a lot of P's and a lot of truth in that statement. How, how our power comes, the closer we get to the throne, the closer we get to God, the more power is going to grow, flow through us. And, and perhaps for some of us, if we're not seeing much of God's power, it's because we're not very close to him in this season. Um, I think it is a, a great message. It's the message that'll encourage you and a message that'll challenge you. Be sure and check that out. Um, I want to talk to you today in Ephesians chapter 3. As I was preparing this series and digging through uh, the different passages, we're going to go chapter 3, 1 through 13, if you're turning there in your Bible. This was the most challenging one for me. Uh, next week, we get to wrap up the, the theology portion, the first three chapters that are, that are very Godward, and, and we see this another powerful prayer. We saw a powerful prayer at the end of chapter one. We're going to see another one next week in chapter three, and so I, I know where I want to go with that. I know what God's going to speak there, and then we transition to chapter four, and it becomes very horizontal. It becomes about our, our interpersonal relationships, and it's going to talk about the church, and then it's going to talk about family, and, and a lot of cool stuff, and then close with the armor of God, this famous passage about how we can be ready for the warfare with the enemy. And so Ephesians has a lot of great stuff in it. And then there's this one little section at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3 that I'm like, I don't know where to go with this. <laughs> so, so this is my most challenging message. But I feel like God gave me a great angle this week. I feel like I have a, a strong idea of how we can de- teach this. And so if you'll hang with me, we're going to read through these 13 verses. And at the end today, I want to give you four takeaways from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Four things that we can take from this and apply to our lives that I think will be very powerful for us. So, so buckle up, get ready, hang with me. Um, I, I believe God's going to speak greatly today. In Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So Paul reminds us, he's writing this from prison. Well, we, we have to have this context that Paul has been arrested for preaching the gospel. He is in prison. He is eventually going to die. The Bible scholars disagree if he's going to die at the end of this prison term or if he's going to get let, set free and go preach some more and then get arrested again. But, but regardless of the timeline, we know he's going to be beheaded for the sake of the gospel. 
that, that, that because he preached Jesus, because he preached this powerful thing, that he's going to lay down his life. And at this point, he's in prison. And so he says, for this reason. So the question, of course, is for what reason? So in case you weren't here last week, or even if you were, as a refresher, we're going to go back and read the last paragraph from Ephesians chapter 2 so we can recall what, what Paul is talking about so we can understand when he says for this reason. So starting in verse 19, it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So, so Paul is speaking of this unity between Jews and Gentiles. He's speaking of this thing that God has done where he's made the two one. The two have become one. And those, he says, those who were far have now been brought near. Where's the power? The power comes when we're brought near, right? When we're near to him. And so Paul's talking about this, this idea that, that as Gentiles, as those who were far from God, as those who were actually enemies of God, Because of Jesus, we've been brought near. We've been brought into his family. We've become a part of his kingdom. And so in chapter 3, he starts and he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Why the sake of you Gentiles? Well, first of all, he's writing to the Gentiles, right? The the church in Ephesus is is full of Gentile believers. It's full of people who weren't Jews. It's full of people mostly like us in this room. Most of us aren't Jews. Most of us were, were, were some sort of ethnicity, some sort of, of people group that was not Jewish. And because of Jesus, we've been brought near. So Paul says, I'm an apostle for your sake. In other words, God had chosen Paul to take this story, to take this truth, to take this message beyond the Jewish people and into all the world. So he says, I'm a prisoner for your sake. Then he says, verse two, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. Everybody say mystery. This word mystery is gonna pop up in, in our English translation here. We're gonna see it four times. The actual Greek word that, that it refers to pops up three times in this section. Uh, and the Greek word is, is a fun one. Sometimes I teach Greek words, and I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to pronounce this right. I'm going to butcher it. I'm like listening to it online, hoping that I can remember how to pronounce it right. This is like the easiest Greek word I will ever teach you. Uh, I, I, if I could do this, I could be a Greek scholar if every Greek word was this, this easy. The Greek word for mystery is mysterion. Sounds like a, like a superhero, doesn't it? Mysterion, right? Or, or a wrestler, Ray Mysterion Jr., right? Like for your wrestling fans. So... So the Greek word is mysterion. Everybody say mysterion. You're a Greek scholar. Don't you feel proud of yourself for coming to church today? Mysterion. So this word mysterion actually appears in the New Testament 27 times. It appears three times in the Gospels. Jesus is quoted as saying it three times. It appears four times in the book of Revelation. And in between those seven times at the beginning and the end of the New Testament, it appears 20 times, each time written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is the Apostle of the Mysterion. He is the Apostle of the Mystery. He's fascinated with this idea of the mystery again and again in 1 Corinthians, in Timothy, in Colossians, in Ephesians. Again and again, he refers back to this idea of the Mysterion. So what 
is the mysterion. What is this thing all about? Well, first of all, we need to know what it means. The literal meaning of mysterion in Greek is a hidden or secret thing, not obvious to the understanding. So, so it's pretty similar to our English understanding, right? A mystery is what? It's something we don't know. Some we're trying to figure out. Some of you like mysteries in movies or in books. When I was a kid and I used to read all the time, I loved reading mysteries. I read like all the Hardy Boys and, you know, like that stuff in uh, Encyclopedia Brown. Like, like I loved reading that stuff and trying to solve the mystery. Well, Paul, if he was a writer of fiction, he'd have probably been a mystery writer. He loves this idea of the mysterion, the idea of the mystery. So what is it? about. Let's go back and read it again in context. It says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery, the mysterion, the hidden or secret thing made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. We're going to come to it again and we'll explain it more when we come to it the second time. Verse four, he says, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery. Everybody say mystery to the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So we learned something else about the mystery. The mystery is unique to the generation that Paul's writing in. He said to other generations, they didn't know about this. They weren't aware of this, but now it's been made known. There's a new dispensation. There's a new revelation of God's goodness where this mystery has been revealed. All right, pastor. So what is the mystery? Kind of keep some suspense, right? We're talking about mystery. We got to have some mystery. What's the mystery? Here's the mystery. It's actually very, very simple. The mystery is that the Jews knew from the very beginning that they were God's chosen people. They had been chosen to demonstrate that, that law could, the law couldn't save us, right? They were given the law. They were given all these rules, and they couldn't live up to them. And we could look at them and say, man, what a failure you were, except the truth is we couldn't live up to them either. They had been chosen to bring the law to the world, to show the world how holy God is how pure God is and how we are incapable of living up to that. They were also chosen to bring Jesus to the world, to bring the Messiah, to bring the Savior to the world. So they were God's chosen people, and they were very secure in this fact that they had been chosen. They felt good about their chosenness. The mystery was that he didn't just choose them. See, the mystery was that has now been revealed in Paul's generation, in his day and age, that the Messiah came to the Jews and through the Jews, but he didn't just come for the Jews. He came for all of us. They had been chosen in many ways, and, and yet in Scripture, the Old Testament hinted time and time and time again that it wasn't just for them, but they missed it. They overlooked it. Let me give you the first example, Genesis chapter 2. This is the, what we call the Abrahamic Covenant. God makes a covenant with a man named Abram. He, he makes a, a promise to this man, Abram, whose name then becomes Abraham, that he's going to do something great. And this is what he says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. He says, I will make you into a great nation. This point in time, Abraham is somewhere between 80 and 90 years old with no kids. And God says, I'll make you into a great nation. That's a crazy promise. That's a, did I eat something I shouldn't have ate last night kind of promise? Am I really hearing from God or am I losing my mind kind of promise, right? He says, I will make you into a great nation. He says, I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. 
Then verse three, he says this. He says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The promise of the savior. Abraham didn't know that's what it meant. Abraham didn't know how all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. Abraham didn't even have a concept of how many people there were on earth. He didn't have a concept of how big the earth was. He had no idea how big this promise was that God was making. But at the very beginning, at the foundation of the Jewish nation, which, by the way, Abraham's the father of the Jewish people, God makes a promise. It's not just for you. I want to bless everybody. I don't just love you. I don't just love your descendants. I love everybody. I'm looking out for the whole world, and I'm going to send a Messiah, a Savior to everyone. So the Old Testament is full of these things, but, but the Jews missed it. And it's easy for us to pick on the Jews and say, man, you should have paid more attention. You should have realized it. But let, let's be honest. If somebody's telling you that you're chosen, but yeah, I love other people too, it's really easy to grab a hold of the I'm chosen part, right? Like that, that's the part that you're going to remember. Hey, we're chosen. We're special. We're different. We're better than everybody else. And so the mystery was Jesus shows up and Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. The Messiah arrives, but the Messiah didn't just come for the Jews and the Jews didn't get it. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. The Messiah is for us. He's for me. He's not for all of us. He's not for everybody. They missed the point. And the reality is, Christians, we're really good at missing the point, too. We're really good at missing how good God is and how great God is. I saw this on Facebook yesterday, and somebody posted this on a friend of mine's status, and so I don't even know the person that posted this. I'm not trying to pick on them. If you know this person, I'm sorry. Uh, but, but I, but I got to share this because it's so relevant to this. There's this discussion about heaven. What's heaven going to be like, and are we going to know people in heaven? What's the Bible say about this? And, and I had commented and said yes because 1 Corinthians says, now we know in part, but then we're going to know fully. We're going to have full understanding. So I believe absolutely we're going to know everybody when we get to heaven. And, and this person said this. They said, well, I believe that when we get to heaven, it's only going to be the people that we want to be there and none of the people that we don't want. She said, I'm not saying the people that we don't want to be in heaven won't go. I'm just saying we won't even know they're there. God's going to protect us from knowing that they're there. And I'm like, okay, so you want to save space in heaven. Um, and, and it's like, okay. I get what they're saying. It's like, hey, it's supposed to be heaven, so this person that I can't stand isn't going to be there because then it wouldn't be heaven, right? It's going to be miserable if my mother-in-law is there, right? Or something like that. But God's so much bigger than that. I believe we're going to know everybody who's there, and even if my deepest enemy is there, they're not going to be my deepest enemy anymore. He's going to make the two one. He's going to rectify the situation and the hurt and the anger and the bitterness. The, the people who abuse somebody, the people who mis misuse somebody, that's going to be melted away because full forgiveness will be restored, because full healing is going to come. We're not going to need a safe place in heaven because heaven itself is a safe place because Jesus is there. And so we miss the point a lot, don't we? We miss the point in a lot of different ways where, where we think somebody was so evil. I remember when, when Ted Bundy was on death row. Some of you may remember who he is. He was a serial killer who did a lot of awful things to women. And he was on death row, and he was getting ready to get electrocuted. He was going to the electric chair in, in the state of Florida, I believe. And I remember my dad saying, because basically somebody, I think it was James Dobson, had met with him on, on his death right before he went 
and, and basically he made this profession for Christ. He, he repented, and of course, only God knows his heart. Maybe he said that trying to sneak his way in, or maybe he really legitimately met Jesus. I don't know. Only God knows. But I remember my dad saying how hard it was for him to imagine that Ted Bundy could be in heaven, and a good person who didn't know Jesus like his mom wouldn't be. How difficult that was to, to imagine that, that that's this evil person, this awful person, this despicable person who did many, many, many awful things could make it to heaven. But again, I think that's, that's our limited perspective because the reality is I'm that evil person. I'm that despicable person. I'm that person who doesn't deserve to be there. And yet because of Jesus, I'm going to make it. Because of Jesus, I'm going to be there with all my junk, with all my shortcomings, with all my failings, with every time I committed something to him and I let him down, with every time that I blew it, I'm still going to make it, not because of my goodness, but because of his. That's the mystery. Why was Paul so consumed with the mystery? Here's why I think Paul was so consumed with the mystery. Because he could never quite understand why Jesus would save him. Because Paul was amazingly aware of his faults, incredibly aware of, of the things he had done. And by the way, he'd done some pretty rotten stuff. There were people who were dead because of Paul. There were Christians who were in prison because of Paul. Paul had been a really awful person before Jesus. And I think he was consumed with the mystery. I think 20 times again and again in his letters, he refers back to the mystery because to Paul, it was always a mystery. I think what an awesome place to be. For any of us, that we'd be consumed with the mystery that Jesus saved us. Paul knew he was saved. He was confident in that. He knew where he was going. He wasn't wrestling with whether he was going to make it. He was just wrestling with God. Why? Why would you love me? Why, why do you see me this way? He was consumed by the reckless love of Jesus. And I think that's an awesome place for any of us, us to be. So, so in his generation, there was this mystery about the Jews and the Gentiles both being saved. There was this mystery among the Jewish people about why would the Messiah come for the Gentiles. Verse 6, it says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. So he begins to explain it. Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. So he unpacks it for us. What is the mystery? The mystery is that because of the gospel, because of Jesus, because of the good news, the Gentiles are heirs too. Hashtag us too. We're heirs. Why? Because of Jesus. You're an heir. I'm an heir together if you're a believer in Jesus. And he says we're members together of one body. So in other words, there's not two classes. There's not the Jews, God's chosen people. They're the ones that he loves the most. And then, yeah, we'll take some Gentiles to heaven too. He says we're members of one body. You've been become spiritually, what the Bible actually teaches is you're Jewish. Like you're, you've, been, you've been grafted in. You've been brought into the Jewish family. So you may not have Jewish blood, and you may not practice Jewish customs, but spiritually you are Jewish. We're members of one body, and we're sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, again, constantly aware of his low position, constantly aware of his unworthiness for salvation, constantly aware that he doesn't belong, but God chose him anyway. He said, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of the mystery, the mystery. 
the mystery. I need to, and his job is to what? Is to make it plain. My job today is to make plain the mystery, to make sure that you understand what it's talking about when you see that word in Ephesians or in any of these other books. He says, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. For generations, this wasn't clear. It was hinted at. It was suggested, but it wasn't explicit. It didn't come face to face with the reality that the Messiah was for everybody. Paul's job was to make it plain to everyone. See, it wasn't just a mystery to the Jews. It was also a mystery to the Gentiles. For the Jews, it was a mystery that the Messiah came for all. But for the Gentiles, it was a mystery that the Messiah came at all. They didn't know he was coming. They didn't know there was a Messiah. They, had, they didn't have hundreds of years of prophecy. They didn't have a thousand years of sacred texts that had been passed on with promises and prophecies that the Messiah was coming. So for the Jews, it was a mystery that he came for everybody. To the Gentiles, it was a mystery that he, there even was one. In, in Acts chapter 19, we see this conversation take place where Paul comes to Ephesus, the same people he's writing to, and he bumps into this group of believers who've received Jesus, and he says, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And you know what they say? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, right? It's the same thing. Gentiles, did you receive the Messiah when he came? We didn't even know there was a Messiah. We had no clue. We were clueless that this thing even existed. So there was a mystery for the Jews that the Messiah came for everybody. There was a mystery for the Gentiles that there was a Messiah. Now, why is this the hardest message to preach in this series? Because 2,000 years later, it's not a mystery, right? Like, we know this. You get this. You're like, okay, why why is this so essential? It was a mystery in that generation because it was fresh, because it was new, because it had never been revealed. Now we have 2,000 years where this has been passed down. It's like, yeah, we know Jesus came for everybody. Get to something more important, right? But it it was significant at this time. So I was trying to think of a way to, to illustrate this and so what better way to have an excuse to share some of my pictures from my trip? So here we go. Go along with me. We're going we're to prove some points about the Bible with the Grand Canyon. So go ahead and throw that first picture of the Grand Canyon up for me. So this is a picture, one of many pictures that I took of the Grand Canyon. You can barely see the Colorado River uh, cutting through there. It's actually green. But that water, God used that water to cut this amazing canyon, the, this amazing place. So we have this this Grand Canyon. Now, for us, for, go ahead and throw that next picture up. This is the best picture of the three of us we could get. Judah would not look at the camera anytime. Uh, my dad wouldn't take off his sunglasses. What happens when you travel with a three-year-old and a 73-year-old? So I apologize, and I don't know who the Cubs fan is, but there you go, Tim. Uh, so, so we got photobombed. Uh, but that's the closest we got to a good picture. Uh, so, so my dad and I, we've heard of the Grand Canyon our whole lives, right? We've seen pictures of it. We've seen videos of it. It wasn't really a mystery to us. The, the mystery was, man, what's it, how big is it really going to be? And that was really the most amazing thing, which is how massive this thing was. Pictures don't do it justice. Video doesn't do it justice. You, you, ha- you can't explain it until you see it. But we had a pretty good concept of what it was going to look like, what it was going to be like. Now, Judah, on the other hand, three years old, I've been telling him for a few weeks, maybe a couple months, hey, you're going to go to the Grand Canyon with Daddy and Grandpa. And he gets so excited. Hey, where are you, you going to go with Daddy and Grandpa? Me go Grand Canyon. Me go Grand Canyon. He get real excited about it. Then we asked him, okay, Judah, what is the Grand Canyon? And this is what Judah said. He said, it's blue. Uh, that, was, that was what he said for weeks heading up to the trip is the Grand Canyon is blue. So we didn't show him any pictures. We didn't give him an idea. I wanted him to be completely in the dark to what the Grand Canyon was. All I told him was it was some big rocks. 
So, so we get there, and at one point while we're there, my three-year-old is looking at the Grand Canyon, and he goes, this is awesome. Why? Because to him, it was a mystery. Because to him, he had revelation. This had never occurred to him. He had no concept, no reference point to what the Grand Canyon was like. Go ahead and put that last picture up for me. So this is Judah. My dad gave Judah some binoculars. Uh, and Judah called them his noculars. Uh, he's like, me, me want my noculars. And so every time me and dad are looking at something on the trip or taking pictures of it, Judah gets his binoculars out. Like he's got to feel important too, right? So, so we got tons and tons of pictures of Judah with his noculars. Uh, but he was so amazed by the Grand Canyon. In fact, we left the Grand Canyon. We drove some, through some other places with some other cool rock formations and canyons. And, and Judah go, look, Dada, the Grand Canyon. I'm like, no, that's not the Grand Canyon, but it's cool that you can associate, right? Like he figured out this was similar to what he had already seen. So why do I say all this besides having an excuse to show you my pictures because I'm on stage and you can't leave? Um, <laughs> Although, let me say this, I did have a nightmare last night that I got like three verses into my message and I had come down on, off stage to make some point and while I turned my back, everybody left. Uh, so, the things that haunt your preacher on Saturday night, right? It was, it was me and Bobby left, so thank you, Bobby, for not leaving. That means Melody left too, but we won't get into that. Uh, so, I'm not turning my back. Uh, <laughs> But for Judah, it was a mystery. He didn't know what he was getting into. It was new to him. Imagine the first people that came up to it. The first people that discovered, obviously, the Native Americans who lived there, they probably had a concept of it because they'd lived there for generations. But as the explorers first got there and first came up to the edge, they didn't know how big it was. They didn't know how long it went. They didn't know how to get across. It was a mystery to them. And I wonder how often we lose the mystery of the gospel because we've heard it so many times. Because we've been there, done that. Because, man, yeah, it changed my life. Yeah, I've read this before. Yeah, I know Jesus died for me. And what if we could come back to the gospel like the first time we saw something amazing like the Grand Canyon? What if we could come back to the gospel like Judah for the first time with no clue that there even was a Grand Canyon until two months ago? Heard about it for a couple months and finally laid eyes on it for himself and he said, this is awesome. What if we could come back to the mystery that God saved me with fresh eyes and realize, oh my gosh, this is awesome. That's the mystery. Paul never lost it. For decades after his salvation, Paul kept a grasp of the mystery. I can't believe he saved me. And it propelled him to make a difference. It propelled him to tell others. It propelled him to be used by God in a massive way. Why? Because he never lost the mystery that God saved him. The mystery. Verse 10, talking about God, he says his intent was that now. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Through who? Through who? Through the church. Not through City Church of Olive Branch, although partially through City Church of Olive Branch, but through the believers in Jesus Christ. That means through you and through me. God's intent was that through you, the incredible, manifold, amazing, mind-blowing wisdom of God would be made known into heavenly places. That we would declare it with our lives, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Here's the great thing about Paul. Paul never forgot how far from God he was, but he never let that keep him from realizing how close to God he could be. He said, because of Jesus, I can go to God with freedom and confidence. He didn't go to God ashamed. He didn't go to God fearful. He didn't think I'm not good enough to be used by God. He knew he wasn't good enough to be used by God, but God used him anyway. And so now he could go before God with freedom and with confidence, according to the eternal purpose that God accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then he says this, verse 13, he says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your in other words, I'm suffering on your behalf, and, and that just demonstrates how worthy you are in God's eyes, how much God loves you, that he would let me suffer to proclaim his truth to you. Don't be discouraged by it. Man, when, when we see persecution increase, and we may in our generation, man, Christianity is going to become more and more unpopular, I believe, and it's going to become more and more common to see Christians suffering, even in America, probably not majorly, but, but, but more than we have for the gospel, and when we do, it's gonna be really tempting to get down. It's gonna be really tempting to get defeated. It's gonna get really tempted to think, woe is me. What does the word say? I said, don't get discouraged. Man, all this does is remind us of the God that we serve, remind us that, that he was willing to suffer for us, and so we can suffer a little bit for him. Don't let it get you down when the day comes that we may have to suffer. So what do we do with Ephesians 3? This, this section, chapter one, verse 1 through 13, this most difficult passage for me of, of the 12 messages we're going to have. Here's what I have, four takeaways for you very quickly. We're going to work through these. Number one, and maybe most significantly, celebrate that the mystery has been revealed. In other words, celebrate that the gospel has come to you. Celebrate that salvation has come to you. Let it be new to you again. Let it be the first time you laid eyes on the Grand Canyon as a three-year-old. This is awesome. Oh, this is awesome. Gaze upon the gospel. Look at God's goodness. Look at what he's done for you. Look at Jesus at the cross and just take a big look and say, oh man, I forgot. This is awesome. He died for me. I had no idea, man. Look at, look at how wide the chasm was. Look at how deep the canyon was. I couldn't get from where I am to where he was, but he said, Jesus, this is awesome. Celebrate that the mystery has been revealed in your life. Second takeaway, take recognize the power of racial reconciliation. Didn't get to dig into this too much in the passage, but, but I want to make sure we don't skip past it. You see, the Jews and the Gentiles, it wasn't just a religious gap. It was an ethnic gap. It was a racial gap. And so I don't believe that the gospel is primarily a gospel of racial reconciliation, but I believe the gospel has implications of racial reconciliation. As Dwindle unpacked last week, and God's talking about making the two one. He's talking about bringing different people of different colors together. He's talking about, man, that, that, that there's no more separation, there's no more divide, that we can be unified, that we can be together, that we can be the same. And obviously, that has a lot of implications for our country, has especially a lot of implications for those of us who live in Mississippi and the Memphis area. Unfortunately, Sunday morning is the most segregated time on our calendar. And that's not okay, guys. We got to be a reflection of heaven. We got to be a reflection of the kingdom. And the kingdom is not divided. The kingdom is where the two become one. 
And so pursue racial reconciliation. Man, pursue people who look different than you. Pursue relationship, pursue conversation, pursue opportunity, not just to have a project or say, hey, I've got my one black friend. I'm saying pursue reconciliation. Find out why, why, why people of another color might see things differently than you do. Why they may perceive news and, and world events through a different lens than the one that you perceive them through. Have those tough conversations. Pursue rec- racial reconciliation. Why? Because it's the gospel. Because Jesus came to make the two one. Man, you know, if you've been around City Church for very long, you know we got a vision to be a church that looks like heaven. And we, we want to be a church that looks the way that heaven looks. For us, practically, that means we want to be a church that looks like Walmart. You go to Walmart, you see Olive Olive Ranch there, right? Right, like we, we I'm not saying you're kind of jerking your pajamas. Uh, but I'm saying, man, we, if they're represented in our community, we want them represented in our church. Why? Because Jesus loves all of us. Because he's made the two one, because he didn't come for one and not the other. He came for all. And we want to be a reflection of God's heart. We want to be a reflection of heaven. Third implication for us, third takeaway is we got to share the mystery with those who haven't heard. There's people in America who, who, who maybe have some tangential idea of Jesus and the gospel, but they don't really know what the gospel is. People that, that may have an idea, and it's like, hey, what's the gospel? And it's like, it's blue, right? Like, like, they just have no clue what it really is, and we've got to introduce them. We've got to take them there. We've got to give them the chance to gaze upon God's goodness, to gaze upon the cross and what it really means. We've got to expose them. So, so share the mystery. Share the truth with those who haven't heard. And, and our last implication is this. We've got to be like Paul. Number four, we've got to take the mystery to the parts of the world who haven't heard. See, we still live on a planet where not everybody's heard, where there's still people groups, there are still places, there are still islands, there are still tribes who've never even heard that Jesus exists. And I don't mean, think that means that all of us have to be missionaries. I don't think that means that all of us have to go to the nations, but I think it means all of us gotta be a part. We gotta give, we gotta pray, and we need to at least ask if we should go. Maybe going looks like a short-term trip. Maybe going looks like a long-term career. But, but all of us need to wrestle with this, that, man, there's people who've never heard, God. There's people who've never seen. There's people who don't even know that there is a Grand Canyon, let alone that Jesus came to bridge that gap. There's people who have no idea. And so we've got to actively engage, actively be a part. A few weeks ago, we told you, Man, we, we, we've got a sheet made up with the names and, and, and locations of all the missionaries that City Church supports. That's still out at the Connection Center. Maybe you grabbed one of those, maybe you didn't. Maybe you grabbed one and, it, man, it ended up on the floor of your car and got thrown away or whatever. Pray over those people. Pray over their work. Pray that God would use them, that God would advance their cause, that salvation would come to the nations to the globe. Why? Because we serve a God who didn't just come for the Jews, but he came for the world. We serve a God who didn't just come for one group that looks one way or worships one way. We came for a God who's bigger than all that, who says, I see value in every human being. All of you were made in my image, and I want to restore every one of you to relationship with my son. That's the God we serve. That's the mystery. So what do we do with this passage? We celebrate that the mystery has been revealed to us. Number one, we we work towards racial reconciliation, number two, because we realize it matters. We share the mystery with those who haven't heard yet in our area, in our lives, in our communities. And we advance the mystery to the nations, to the world, to the globe. Would you pray with me, church? 
Father God, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for the mystery that Jesus came for all of us. He didn't just come for the Jews, God. He came for the world. We thank you for the Messiah. We thank you for the Savior. Lord, I pray for every Christian in this room. Make the mystery real again. God, let us gaze upon it with fresh eyes. Let us again be amazed that you would love us, that you would save us, that you would do something for us. God, let us discover that all over again afresh and anew. God, we speak racial reconciliation over our community, over Memphis, over Mississippi. God, we know we have some deep wounds here. We have some deep sins here. God, there have been some great wrongs committed, even in your name. And God, we know that that the sins of the fathers are passed down to the sons, so our community bears the marks of those sins. So God, we we repent for any way that we have not been a part of of restoring your reconciliation to, to people of all colors, of all ethnicities, of all races, God. We ask that you would help us to be agents of your reconciliation. God, to be agents of restoration, Lord, that we would be someone that that represents you well, that we would be people who look like heaven and and Olive Branch, God, we'd be a church that looks like Walmart. God, because we believe it's important because it's important to you. So we ask you to do that, God. Bring restoration even through us. Help us to see any areas in our own lives where we have bitterness or, or hatred or stereotypes or division. God, tear those things down in Jesus' name that we would be one. God, we ask you to help us to share the mystery with those who haven't heard, God, whether it's the little ones like Judah who just have no concept what it's like or or whether it's somebody else in our life, at our workplace, in our community who just has been shielded from the truth. God, help us to bring that truth to them in a mighty and a powerful way. And God, we just pray for the gospel to go to the nations. We lift up our missionaries right now, God, not just ours, but other missionaries all across the globe who are sharing Jesus, even today, even on Sunday, who are going and sharing Jesus with the lost, with people of of many faiths, God, with people of no faith, with atheists, with those who think that they're Christian but have never yet experienced your love or made a relationship with you. God, we speak salvation to the nations, God, especially to those who have never heard. God, send someone. Use us, Lord, even as we invest in missions, even as we give. Lord, we ask that you would use that to take the truth, the gospel to the nations, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name.